Hello and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter Gabby Barco, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Good morning, Kale. Hey, Gabby. It's good to chat with you again. So great job with Anna last week. I thought it was a great episode. Yeah, loved having Anna on. Love her takes. So <laughs> every week we break down the biggest headlines in the retail world. This week we have a lot of fun grounds to cover. First, we'll be discussing Aesop's acquisition, and then we'll be talking about American Eagle's supply chain arm, which had some shakeups. And finally, we'll be talking about Chipotle's fierce protection of its trademarked branding. <laughs> All right. So first off, very, very intense stuff. First off, let's talk about uh, the Aesop acquisition. This was a really big deal uh, this week. L'Oreal announced that it will be acquiring the uh, skincare cosmetics brand for $2.5 billion. This is L'Oreal's biggest acquisition ever, which put into context is, um, I think it exceeds even their last, uh, YSL Beauty was their last one, and that was at $1.7 billion. So just to give you context into what everyone feels Aesop is worth. So yeah, Kale, shall we shall we dive in and uh, talk a little bit about how Aesop got, got here? Just you know, from a branding point of view, from a revenue point of view. Sure. So uh, I mean, Aesop was was not an uh, independent company before this. It was actually purchased by the Brazilian beauty giant Natura, uh, which they own um, a bunch of other companies like The Body Shop and Avon. And so they, uh, so I think the story goes that Natura had purchased a 65% stake in Aesop in 2012, and then in 2016 just formally acquired it to be part of its um, entire portfolio. It was really clearly a more luxury play because Aesop is, you know, that's the brand that you find in nice hotels. That's how you know it's a nice hotel, right? Or a bar. Or a bar or a gym, I guess. If you go to a gym <laughs> and they have Aesop, that means it's a good gym. Yes, exactly. That's our barometer. So I think that like uh, it's an interesting. I mean, it points to two things. One thing, L'Oreal is clearly trying to uh, grow its portfolio and buy these finer these finer companies. Um, it also shows some some difficulties at Natura because uh, clearly clearly they needed to offload one of its nicer brands and also probably make some money so that it could remain profitable. So there are a few there are a few things going on here that I think are are super interesting. But but yeah. And then I think uh, just as far as L'Oreal being interested in Aesop, um, you know, it's a brand, it's an Australian company that was founded in 1987. But, you know, I feel like if you ask any millennial, it was probably founded in, I don't know, the 2010s, just based <laughs> on its trajectory, right? Because that is sort of, um, you know, at least here in the US, um, it really took off in the last 10 years or so. Um, so, I mean, I think it, the... I was reading that the uh, their revenue went from about 28 million in 2012 to 537 million in 2022. So you don't get there by not being beloved <laughs> by a certain cohort. Absolutely. And I think that Aesop as a brand fits into a bunch of very on on trend things right now, I guess you could say. Like it's it's part of wellness, you know, it's it's nicer soaps, it's nicer nicer body products. Um, and it also just taps into the whole, I guess you could say better for you, but also luxury branding that has been really resonating, which, you know, we at Modern Retail talk about mm -hmm. things that aren't necessarily uh, 
inflation proof, but like maybe more inflation resistant. And it seems like a lot of these nicer types of wellness or, you know, body care companies are doing well specifically in the funding space, in the acquisition space, but also just in the what people are still buying, what they're willing to shell out for, um, even though economically times are tighter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we should mention that, of course, a lot of that growth uh, happened to come under Natura, uh, you know, they helped them uh, scale a lot over the last few years, opening a lot of new stores, uh, really penetrating and doubling down on certain urban markets. Uh, so I think there's something to be said about working uh, or trying to grow a brand like this under uh, an umbrella company as opposed to independently, because at some point, if you're trying to be global, you probably need those resources. And so it seems like this transition to L'Oreal is going to be building on that. I think. Uh, for example, China is a really big market that Aesop started to go into last year. They opened their first stores there on mainland mainland China in 2022. And it looks like I think there was some hints that L'Oreal will help them continue to push there because it's a, it's really a huge opportunity for them. Yeah. And I would say that Aesop was a really good asset for Natura. Uh like I, I think that uh, it was it was a profitable asset. Natura said it contributed seven point five percent to its revenue and almost twenty five percent to its EBITDA um, last year. Uh, this is according to a recent S and P Global Ratings note. But it's clear that on the Natura front, that wasn't enough, and that it needed to probably get a lot of money and quick. And so uh, I think its debt uh, stood at one point four billion dollars, and so selling something for more than that was going to help its debt. But uh, yeah, it seems like if you are, if you're in this space and you're especially a bigger umbrella player, you're looking for uh, a brand like Aesop that's resonating well, that can sell in many different markets, that is growing and has a certain type of brand cachet, which Aesop definitely has. Personally, I've noticed this a lot in the last decade where, you know, big beauty or cosmetics conglomerate wants to have one of these, you know, really you know, a brand that resonates with, of course, there's like more of the high-end luxury or high fashion set. Um, at, the, at the same time, it's growing among mainstream or uh, mass market uh, customers, because of course, if you could upsell someone, why not? <laughs> you know, from the, the I mean, of course, L'Oreal also owns brands like Maybelline, which is more of a br drugstore brand. But I always, th I think about the parallels of um, Estee Lauder really taking La Labo to the next level. Um, that was also an independent brand, but only for a couple of years. Uh, they have a really interesting history uh, of just being this like artisanal French brand that now is, you know, part of this giant international conglomerate. Yeah. And I would say that also with L'Oreal specifically, uh, I'm looking right now at his last earnings, or I don't know if it's the last earnings, but what was posted in October of 2022. And it's, you know, L'Oreal Lux, which is uh, some of its nicer players like Lancome and Kiehl's. Uh, they grew, they grew 4.6%, but it was way below what people thought was it was going to grow at 9%. And so it seems like L'Oreal is trying to sort of put some juice into this area of the business so that it can see the growth uh, that it really wants to see from, from these nicer products. And so it makes sense uh, whether or not it'll, you know, be a panacea for L'Oreal remains to be seen, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. And, you know, of course, as the biggest cosmetics company in the world. Um, they're they're sort of a leader on this front. So it'll be That's interesting true. to see where they take Aesop next. I actually just want to make one more note, which I think is really mm -hmm. interesting um, with Natura. Uh, 
I think Natra is in a really big bind because if you look at the other two brands that are its biggest brands, they're uh, The Body Shop and Avon. And it purchased Avon, I'm trying to remember when, but not that long ago. It was sort of sort of a weird... Um, oh, it purchased it in 2019 in a stock deal for $2 billion. Um, and like... Who thinks about Avon anymore? Which isn't, I mean, maybe in the maybe in the South, you know, Natra's Brazilian base, maybe in South America it resonates, but analysts that uh that modern retail actually spoke to for for uh, a, a story about this pretty much are like, that was a huge mistake. Why would you invest in this brand and spend that much money in what was, you know, a huge, a huge company in the 80s and 90s, maybe early 2000s, but clearly does not have the the force it did today that it did before and that's what they're they're putting all of their marbles in i don't know it's a it's an interesting thing that that's that's the asset they're keeping though i imagine they wouldn't be able to sell it for as much as they sold aesop yeah and of course um you know avon has a very different business model than uh these that's other true. brands so yeah so some uh yeah some kind of a little bit of a questionable question mark there but mm-hmm so on to, you know, less glamorous news. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about some, uh, yeah, some news coming out of American Eagle Outfitters. They have, uh, you know, I feel like for a few months there in 2021, we really uh, saw them investing really heavily in supply chain, uh, sort of first party uh, and, you know, a platform that could be licensed to other retailers. Uh, this was through an acquisition of Quiet Platforms. That was uh, that really has helped them actually ramp up their uh, you know fulfillment and help shorten delivery times and all that. So all, all good things for their e-commerce business. But of course, like other retailers, this is a space that's slowing down. So yeah, Kale, do you want to give us a little insight on what happened there at Quiet Platforms? Sure. So uh, first, Quiet Platforms, nay, Quiet Logistics, which if you want to really go mm. deep into the annals of modern retail, I wrote a profile of them in 2019. I'm fascinated by this entire space. They were really an early player in the the logistics fulfillment space that we're focusing on robotics and pretty much saying you can automate a lot of it and that will save a lot of your bottom line. They were bought in uh, 2021 by American Eagle for $350 million. And the idea was this would both help American Eagle with doing e-com fulfillment, doing quick delivery. They, I'm pretty sure micro-fulfillment is a big thing with Quiet and also these very tech-forward spaces that make it easy to fulfill products um, in a quicker span of time. The, the news is that this week, a bunch of their executives have stepped down. So uh, the president of Quiet Platforms, uh, who is also American Eagle's chief supply chain officer, uh, is exiting immediately due to, quote, changes within the Quiet Platforms organization. And then the chief operating officer of Quiet Platforms um, left the company last month. And this was a really big thing for American Eagle. The, you know, this was about quickening their fulfillment, but also the fact that they were investing in this invisible but important part that they could work with other companies on. Um, and they were touting it uh, as, you know, a really, a really big thing, uh, you know, a year ago, I want to say in 2021. Or you know, beginning twenty twenty two, they they called their acquisition of Quiet the, an anti Amazon move that it helped them quote do more with less, and that it would help them contribute an approximately thirty five percent reduction in delivery times. All great things. Let's go forward to a year now. Um, now it's not doing as well. American Eagle's chief operating officer uh, Michael Rempel he said that uh, Quiet Platforms grew nearly forty percent. 
great, but its margins also grew. And so like if you are in the the 3PL, the fulfillment, the logistics business, that requires a lot of investment. So even if your business is growing, so too are all of the investments around with it. Um, and so the the margins of the business, he said, were below what we expected. I don't know. I think that it's a we've been covering a lot of the shakeups in the 3PL and fulfillment space here at Modern Retail. And I think that this is a really great example of what's going on where a lot of companies invested a lot in these types of platforms were trying thought that this would be the way to save their business but it's requiring a lot more of an investment and they're not seeing the return they thought they would see and that's happening this year specifically when we're in the midst of an economic downturn so there are a lot of different things at play that I find super interesting but the fact that this huge shakeup for one of the most vaunted acquisitions in this space uh I think tells a greater story about what's going on in the overall e-com fulfillment space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a $350 million acquisition not too long ago. And so this, you know, I think it, to me, it always speaks to, you know, the the changes that are happening so quickly, the scaling back uh, in these investments happening just speaks to where we are economically and the fact that maybe that's going to be taking a backseat. They did say that they want to grow this uh, segment profitably. So I wonder if that means more so having other retailers use it or, um, yeah, sort of working on the third party because, um, you know, they also work with retailers like Kohl's and Peloton. So it seems like they're trying to grow that side in order to, uh, you know, improve those margins. It's true. But like, you know, in order to grow this type of thing, you have to grow the actual fulfillment centers and the, the technology underlying them. And so that costs a lot of money. And I'm, I would love to know exactly what it was. Was it that they weren't making enough deals to to grow a pace with these, or the economics just didn't work out from the beginning? I don't know. There's a I wrote a few weeks ago about just overall issues in the three PL space about how there are a lot of companies that claim to be tech enabled and are very venture backed, but brands, especially small to medium-sized brands, are still having a lot of problems and they they seem to be running into the same issues that they would if they were using just any any fulfillment platform. And so it seems like there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation happening on the press release pages. But then when you get down to the economics and the actual the, you know, you see what's actually happening, it's yet to hit where where, you know, hit where it needs to be. And I think that's being exacerbated because uh because you know, e-com sales are not growing at the same rate that they were a year ago. Because people are tightening their spend, more people are going into stores than they are buying online. There are a lot of different things that are making it so that what was once a really smart investment a year ago that they thought would be a great way to save money as long as these businesses were able to scale that aren't being proven out right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll be. Interesting to see where it will go in the next year or so as, you know, maybe some of those uh, factors will impact some retailers even further. I want to move on next to our last story of the day, which is uh, revolved around Chipotle. This is an interesting one. I, you know, I love a trademark story, but <laughs> Kayla, you want to you wanna tell us about why Chipotle took out the pitchforks and went to court? They took out the pitchforks and they went to court. Um, I love this. I love Chipotle. You know, I love sweet green. I love it all. But uh, yeah. We love it all. <laughs> we are not biased here. If, it, if it's fast casual, Gabby and Kale are getting it. Um, but <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so sweet green, uh, for those who don't know, the fast casual salad player. If you want a $16 salad, do I have a place for you? Um, they unveiled a new product, um, I think last week or the week before, it's a really new product, and it was called Chipotle Chicken Burrito Bowl. And then Chipotle was like, what? Um, and so Chipotle sued Sweet Green for trademark infringement. Um, according, this is from CNBC, I'm quoting it, Chipotle's lawsuit claims that Sweet, Sweet Green advertisements for the menu feature Chipotle in a font similar to the burrito chain's stylized logo and sometimes uses a shade of red similar to Chipotle's trademark Adobo Red. Sweetgreen's website features the product name larger than any other identifying feature that it ties back to Sweetgreen. Chipotle argues in the complaint. The complaint also notes multiple times that Chipotle and Sweetgreen are both competitors in the fast casual sector, which is very, very true. I mean, I would, I would say that you know, they definitely have overlapping customers. I would say their branding and their price points are, one could argue, slightly different. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm, you know, splitting hairs. But I think it's really interesting that Sweet Green had a Chipotle chicken burrito bowl, which does sound essentially like something you would get from Chipotle. Um, it has, I will say, already been settled. Chipotle has changed the name. But I think it's a really interesting I would love to know what the idea was behind it and how no one saw this coming. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, again, like we're, we're, we're just sort of analyzing this in uh, hindsight, but I came across this ad and I did not really think about Chipotle to be honest. What I okay. saw, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, you know, it doesn't have the same, obviously like the logo or anything. And of course, just even the colorway and the aesthetic is very different as sweet green. So, you know, it just kind of, it looks more, Honestly, it just looks more like a salad than it does even a bowl, to me at least. So I just thought it was interesting that, I mean, like, does Chipotle have a team that just looks out for any sort of likeness out there? And um, I think it just speaks to how serious they are about the fact that, I don't know, I guess like they've cornered the market on Chipotle sauce. You know, that you can't know what else is allowed to use it. Yeah, I mean, I will say it does make an interesting question about the word chipotle. Like chipotle is an ingredient. I mm -hmm. use I use chipotle peppers in a lot of my cooking at night. And so what specifically made this trademark infringement compared to other things? I guess it has to do with the fact that it led with the word chipotle. Mm -hmm. Um because the 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 new name is now chicken plus chipotle pepper bowl. So it's it's more explaining it as an ingredient and not a branding. Mm -hmm. That that is my, you know, non I did not go to law school, but I imagine that is what what the, what they changed. Um, but I do, you know, I'm sure Chipotle is keeping an active eye out on all of its perceived competitors. And like both, I think Chipotle is doing pretty well when it comes to sales. Um, it'd be interesting to see, uh, uh, you know, I think that the fast casual segment is is a difficult one because uh, they, they go up, they go down. They're very, very competitive. They're all vying for the same type of commuter market. So I, I imagine they are all keeping very, very heavy tabs on each other to see what the others are doing. And if they think one is encroaching on the other's space, they will act very, very swiftly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I think it's, it's interesting. I just want to touch on this for a little bit, but it is interesting that we talk about price points. Uh, the same way we did a few years ago, because if you actually look closely at menu items, at least in big cities where I feel like you can't really get a Chipotle bowl in New York for less than ten dollars. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't really true. tried lately, but um, it is interesting to think about in the last few years, especially with um, you know raising menu prices. I do think Chipotle positions itself 
as more of a premium brand these days. And, you know, they think of themselves as very digitally focused, you know, with uh, sort of digital orders and online orders. And so I, I wonder if some of that is maybe giving them more, uh, you know, there's a little bit more of an overlap with, you know, places like Sweet Green than maybe like a fast food place. Yeah, I think that's very right. I also think that they all, a lot of these companies, both Chipotle and Sweetgreen, are early entrants into the digital ordering space. They, you know, everyone knows about, or not everyone, but if you're in New York and you worked at an office in 2019, you knew about the Sweetgreen app, and that was the only way, so you didn't have to wait in line. Chipotle also was, you know, one of the early players where you could order online and pick it up. You know, I I, I think both of them are not seeing the gains that they wanted to see, over, especially recently. So I'm looking at Chipotle's earnings. They, you know, they saw same day sales, uh, same store sales rise, but they didn't hit. They they rose 5.6 percent as opposed to estimates of around 7 percent. Um, and they've been launching a lot of new higher end products. I know that uh, one of the new ones is chicken. Al Pastor, I think. I just saw it because I went to Chipotle the other day. They had a new garlic guajillo steak menu. They're like, it seems like they're trying to show themselves as a nicer, you know, a nicer place that has finer products as opposed to just being the quick place where you get a quick burrito bowl. Similarly, um, uh, I think Sweetgreen saw, did not miss its revenue targets. Uh, I'm trying to scan it right now, but it did not did not look great. Uh, I think uh, net sales climbed twenty nine percent to one hundred twenty four million, which was not the one hundred twenty nine point four million that uh, Wall Street wanted them to. So I think that they're both trying to launch new products. They both are trying to reach different types of lunch and dinner eaters, but also they both are scrambling to hit the growth that their investors want them to hit. So eh, it's a it's a gnarly time for fast casual. So that's all we have for you this week. Don't forget to rate and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders every Thursday and come back every Saturday for the Modern Retail Rundown. Gil, do you want to give us a preview of who you have on next week? Sure. Uh, I'm talking with the founder and CEO of Argent Workwear, Sally Christensen. I'm excited to talk with her about the state of workwear, the state of apparel, all that jazz. So tune in and listen. Great. Exciting. All right. See you soon.